going with me, Cheryl? That is a pretty good illustration. Hadn't seen that one before. Uh, today's message, uh, today is going to be uh, an opportunity to pray. Uh, Don Mattis is on the schedule, but he is still away out of town. He's working on a business project, uh, and I'm looking forward to him returning. Uh, in the interim, it's an opportunity for us to come before the Lord. And many of you have voiced some concerns. I don't know if you have that picture of Bob Braun that you could put up there for me. But, but uh, is, is, if it's close by, it would be... we need to take our matters to prayer. And that movie that's coming out this Friday is a wonderful, wonderful call for all of God's people to enter into the war room. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, as we come to this place, as we come to your church, we're looking for a refuge. We're looking for sometimes a hospital where the doctors can come and fix us. Sometimes we're thinking of the church as a gas station where we can fill her up. Sometimes we're looking at it like a Wawa store where we can just run in and get what we need and run out. Lord, sometimes we think that this is home where we come in and we spend some time together. We eat meals together. We, we cry together. We struggle together. Sometimes the church is also seen as a, a military base where people come and they go through the boot camp to get equipped to take on the rest of the, of the task to do special ops. Sometimes we see it as a sports analogy where we come together and huddle up and we try to find out what is the will of God for us right now. And then we break and we run the play as if a football team going out to the line of scrimmage. There are a lot of different analogies that we find in Scripture, O Lord. But we come today as children coming to the Father, to the good, good Father. And we know that we're loved. That's who we are. And the Holy Spirit confirms it with our spirit. But Lord, we also know that we're fallen creatures. All of us have sinned. We've all fallen short of your standard. We need a Savior. Lord, we need you every hour. We need you. And so we come to you right now and we ask for your help. First of all, we ask that you will, uh, that you will remove distractions from us. That we might see you and know you. Lord, I pray that you might inspire us, that your kingdom will come and that your will be done on earth like it's done in heaven. Lord, we pray that some of these initiatives that this session has, uh, has been laboring over would not just be ideas, but that it would be a rallying cry for the people of God to go into the highways and byways to reach folks, to love them, to communicate with them, and to see them equipped so that they might also be able to go into the highways and byways and bring them in from the fields of sin. Lord, I pray that when they come to this place, they will find peace and that passes understanding. I pray that they will find fellowship. I pray that they will find a refuge. For our help comes from the Lord, as, as Psalm 46 says. Lord, there is no other place to run. If we run away from this place, then where will we find you? Where will we find that comfort? Where would we find that consolation? Lord, as we come into this place, uh, we've been encouraged last week to come on our knees, to come with clean hands and a pure heart, to search to see if there are wicked ways within us, and to confess those sins before you, and even to confess them one with another. Lord, I know that I have seen people with tears of light. I have seen people struggle over employment things. I have seen people in pain. Likewise, I've seen the guy in the mirror. 
And Lord, I pray that you will show up and comfort our souls, that you will show up and direct our paths, that you will show up and inspire us to things that we've never done before. I pray that just like in the war room, that we might petition the throne of grace. We pray that you will answer. We thank you for the good news from the surgeries. We thank you that there is recovery taking place. We thank you that there is lost loved ones that are being ministered to, whether it's a nursing home, assisted facility, or in some of our houses. I thank you that there are those who have eyes to see the needs around us, of the homeless, of those who are pregnant and not anticipating it, of those who are struggling to find some companionship when they feel so isolated and alone, and those who feel so destitute that they don't even know where the next meal will come. Lord, we are so blessed. Even in the snacks before the service, there are people who give, people who donate, people who prepare, and there's always excess. Oh, Lord, I pray that we might have eyes to see the needs of others. And I pray that you'll help us to not just simply say, be warmed and be filled, but I pray that we might give them the shirt off our back if necessary, that we might go the extra mile, that we might love our neighbors as ourselves. Lord, I also want to pray that you will raise up representation in, our, in the governments that you've established in our home, in the church, and in the state. I pray that we might be able to rejoice when people are doing what you bid them to do rather than doing what seems right in their own eyes. May we be very attentive to the leading of the Holy Spirit. To thine be the glory forever and ever. Amen. If you'll turn in your Bibles, we're going to be in Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. It is an exciting passage. Uh, If you look at the back of your bulletin, you're going to see that there is a couple of themes that we've been resonating uh, and, and in preparation for reading the text, I just wanted to highlight those five particular things that have the, uh, the little stars by them. Um, the one is caring. God's people have eyes of faith both to see others with their never-dying souls and the corresponding love generated by the Holy Spirit to meet their real needs. This is one of the things that we want to do at New Covenant Church. We want to love one another. Number two, we want to pray. We really believe with the, uh, many of the reformers of old that we need to be on our knees more. I think I heard, uh, I read once that Martin Luther had so much to do that he decided to get up two hours earlier and pray for God to do it. Uh, praying, God's people talking with God about everything, including about himself, uh, about our own shortcomings, about God's faithfulness to provide for things, and about our genuine appreciation of his sovereign involvement in our lives, to acknowledge him. Thirdly is communicating. This is one thing I know that I've been confessing quite a bit, and I know we as a session want to do much better. We want to communicate. God's people are, are to be quick to hear from God through his word and through his messengers. Their speech is always to be delivered with grace and as each is to be called to winsomely, eagerly, uh, winsomely eager towards both those in and outside the church to share, illuminate, instruct, influence, to invite, and even to rebuke and confront. You see, the whole ministry of communication means that something is being transmitted, something is being received. Uh, this is, if you look at the, orange, the brown box below, you'll see that that's one of the key missions of the church, to communicate the gospel by our words and by our deeds to ourselves, to our neighbors, and to the world. The fourth one is discipling. 
Not only do we want to communicate, but we want others to be equipped to do communication too. God's people delight to be in relationship where they are either being taught or where they are, where they are able to teach as the Holy Spirit guides them into his truth to move people spiritually from each, where each one is to where God would have them be. That's for you. We want to see each one of us here move from where we were to where God would have us be. And the, the fifth one is committing. It's a new kind of an angle. Instead of focusing on volunteering, we're wanting you to focus on committing. God's people actively embrace the opportunities that God's Spirit has prepared for them. God has good works for you to be doing. He has good works for me to be doing. Expressing timely and intentional passion and personal ownership of God's kingdom purposes in the now time. These are some of the things that have been laid before us. And my encouragement is for you to ponder how God is going to work in us to bring these things to pass. And this has led us into the portion of scripture that we're in, in the, in the church As Jesus ascended to heaven, he gave gifts unto men, which is leadership and organization. And he said, let's get doing the things that I've called you to do. And so in Acts chapter 2, 3, 4, 5, and now chapter 6 and 7, we're going to see how some of these things were unfolding. So let us reverently attend to the public reading of God's inerrant and inspired word. We're going to be looking at those portions of scripture. They're also printed inside your bulletin. Uh, We're going to look at Acts chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. And uh, you're going to notice that when Luke gives us this eyewitness account, or he collected this account from those who were there, Luke shows up in chapter 16, so he had to get this information from others. But if you're in your pew Bibles, it's page 1163. Let us reverently attend to the public reading of God's inerrant, infallible, inspired word, as it was given in the originals, which is simply to say that if you could read Greek, that's what we'd be reading. But since you read English, we're going to be using an English translation. I'll be reading from the ESV. In chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, the scripture tells us, Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. That's the first portion of scripture. And now I want to take you to chapter 7, beginning at verse 54. Now, when they heard these things. Now, these are the things that Stephen has just preached, which is a huge section of scripture. After they heard him preach, this is where it picks up. When they had heard these things, they were enraged. And they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But the people cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, He cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. 
Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, I ask that you will take this message and that you will make it yours. I pray that everyone in this room today will hear from you. May the words of this preacher's mouth and the meditations of our congregation's hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord. In your name, amen. The War Room movie. You remember how the trailer finished? Maybe you weren't paying attention. Should we play it again? (laughs) At the end of the movie, you have this lady in her closet, and she is crying out to God, and she says to the one gal who's having a marriage that's falling apart, there's there's a tension, she says, you need to do your fighting on your knees in prayer. It's really interesting, the tensions that are all around us. This week, if you picked up the newspaper or if you were looking at the news, uh, news stations, you no doubt saw the epic, the huge meeting, pardon my pun, uh, of, of Donald Trump with uh, the Speaker of the House. And it was like, these people have such great controversy and they're going to come together. What did they expect us to believe? It's really interesting. It was a big showdown. It was, it was being set up as if it was Muhammad Ali going up against uh, Joe Frazier or against Sugar Ray Leonard going up against uh, that guy Tommy Hearns or uh, for those of us that are movie buffs, you know, Rocky going up against Apollo Creed. You know, there's all this fascination with who's going to win. How, what's the outcome going to be? Is it going to be a draw? Is it going to be a win? I found it interesting how God works the sermons out. This is the text for this week. And I'm looking at it saying, communication. What do we learn from the communications in this text? I was going to say that if you go to the sports arenas, if you go to the boxing rounds, or if you watch the, the NBA finals, you know that one game that the Spurs were playing against the, uh, the Oklahoma City uh, team, and they had like five missed calls in the last 30 seconds. And those of you that are, that are into that, you're saying, ah, oh, they just gave it away. And it all depended on which side you were for. Were you happy that OKC won or are you happy that they lost or, or, or that the uh, Spurs lost? I mean, it was a heartbreaker no matter how you look at it. But when you go to that arena, you expect the rest to get it right. You expect that all these things are going to be in order. These human conflicts that are in those arenas, they have boundaries. They have people who, have, who are trying to maintain the rules of engagement. But in today's world, we don't have referees. As I was speaking with somebody that is from the postmodern generation, they were talking about how today's society tries to get around those rule keepers. We don't like the old institutions. And as a result, he called them gatekeepers. He said, we try to avoid going through their gates. And he said, that's what happens, for instance, like Comcast. I don't know, some of you have Comcast? If you don't have Comcast, you're going around Comcast to get your TV. You might have your Netflix, or you might have your Hulu, or you might have something else. In other words, you're saying, I'm not going to go through them and pay their prices. I'm going to go around and get what I want, because I can find it another way. I don't have to go through them. And they bypass the old rules. What were the rules in the early church? How are they supposed to follow and do things? And the problem ends up coming up is that, that some of the conflict arises and you don't know what to do with it. 
In some of the most recent movies from uh, DC and from Marvel and, and even some of the old ones like The Incredibles, you have these superheroes, or they call them supers. And, and they become the problem. And so you have civil war, or you have a battle against two of them, or you have somebody trying to bring the supers down in The Incredibles. All of these storylines deal with conflict and how to resolve it. Sometimes in today's world, we have thrown out the rules and we've gone to the mob mentality. We've gone to labeling. We've gone to loudness. We've gone to spinning things. We've gone to repetition of things and we've gone to silencing the opposition. And you see it in all different places, whether it's on campuses, whether it's in neighborhoods, whether it's even in political debates. If you don't like it, you end up crying foul. But if there's no referee to call it, then what do you do? The communications are what we find in the text today. Stephen is a master communicator. This text is all about him. And it's from chapter 6, you're going to find out all the way through through chapter 7. Stephen is the key guy. And if you're taking notes, the three Ps that I want to highlight for you is the pragmatism of his communication. Secondly, the presentation of his communication. And thirdly, the profoundness of his communication. When you think through these things, uh, the pragmatism, the pragmatism is where I want to start. But it's actually at the end. How successful was it? Then I want to take you to the presentation. I wanted you to see how compelling was, was Stephen's speech. And thirdly, I want to talk about how substantial was it. Did it, did it have any substance? Did it have any uh, guts to it? The first point is the pragmatism. Because when you're looking at a communication, if my sister teaches a communications class up at Cecil College... Um, so she's into communication, and we're teaching people all the different styles of communication. You know, there's, there's different kinds of, you can have uh, interrogative, asking questions, you can have rhetorical, you can have indicative, you can have imperative, you can have lots of different ways of communicating. And when you have those techniques, those tools, then you've got to figure out what are you trying to get across? What are you trying to accomplish? Now, when Stephen ends up being brought into the picture, he's brought into the picture because he has a Greek name and he was found to be a faithful guy who could help out some of the widows who were being neglected by the apostles. The apostles were overwhelmed. They had way too many people join the church, which is a good problem. Love to have that here. And the problem was is that some people actually got neglected and part of that issue, as we brought out last week, was because of a bias towards the cultural favoritism. The ones who spoke Hebrew, the ones who spoke the Aramaic, they were the ones that huddled together. And the ones who spoke the Greek, and the ones who were kind of had the customs of the Greek and the Romans, they kind of held in another group. And in Jerusalem, the group that spoke the Aramaic got favor, favor treatment. The other ones kind of were neglected. Whether it was by design or by accident, it still happened and it had to be addressed. So that's where we were. Stephen is introduced to us as a man who was going to help fix it. The, uh, the people said, this guy's a good guy. And so they brought him before the elders and they ordained him to be a deacon. And hence, the office of a deacon was clarified. Now, when we pick it up in chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, we find that this deacon does some fascinating communications. And that's why I say, when we look at his communications, did they work? Were they successful? What kind of results did he get? 
Well, if you have your Bibles, I want to be able to show you some of the results, and then we'll address, I'll answer that question for you. In chapter 7, verse 57, we can see some of their results. Stephen, the great communicator, has spoken, and the number one thing they did in verse 57 is they covered their ears. Okay? It'd be like you going over your ears and saying, I don't want to listen anymore. I'm not going to listen anymore. Secondly, after, G- after Stephen communicated, they started yelling at the top of their voices. With great loudness, they started yelling because they didn't want to even hear his voice. They couldn't stop it, so they wanted to get louder so they couldn't hear it. The third thing in verse 57 is they rushed at him. If you're not going to shut up and be quiet, then we're going to physically stop you. And so the mob ended up running at him and rushing at him. And then if you look at the fourth thing in verse 4, or excuse me, verse 58, they dragged him outside of the city. They, they grabbed him by the collar, or they probably didn't have a collar like we have. They grabbed him, and they yanked him, and they pulled him outside of the city. Now, I just want you to know, I was there in January, and we were standing at Stephen's Gate. Stephen's Gate. It's the gate where Stephen got dragged out, and that's where he was thrown outside of the city walls of Jerusalem. And one thing that everybody from our group there, everyone was at Stephen's Gate, they noticed this one thing. There was no shortage of rocks, even today. I see Joan nodding her head. Yes, there were lots of rocks outside of Stephen's Gate. It wasn't very far from where they collected the garbage right now either. But there was a lot of rocks if you came out that gate, Stephen's Gate. Now, when you think through these things, was Stephen successful in how he communicated? Pragmatically, I want to give an emphatic no. He did not win the hearts of those people he was trying to reach. He was a big zero. He failed to be able to do it. I mean, look, Stephen has a nice speech. He probably had a good cadence to his voice. And I bet even when he spoke his final words there at the end of verse 59, while they were stoning him, Stephen spoke on his knees. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Don't hold this sin against them. Those beautiful words being communicated didn't get received. Oh, pardon. They did get received, but not by the people who were throwing the stones. And this is one of the things I want to come back and tell you is that communication pragmatically is not just if you win the heart and the soul of the person you're talking to. Uh, it actually, is, it is to the person you're talking to. It's not just to the crowds that are around you. Because Jesus, he was talking to Jesus. Lord, receive my spirit. Lord, don't hold their sin against them. Now, if you go back to chapter 6, verse 9, the scripture says that opposition arose from people who were in the church. Back in those days, it was called the synagogue. It's where the Jews gathered. This is in the early church. They gathered in this place. And there were people from a bunch of different regions. Did you notice There were people from Europe, there were people from Africa, and there were people from Asia. Wow. This is a multicultural group. If you look at the names, there were the people from, uh, that had been in prison and probably went to Rome. Some of them had been freed. Then you have Alexandria, which is down in Egypt, along the uh, northern coast of Africa. And then you have people from Cilicia and Asia, Asia Minor. So you have people from all these different continents coming together, and they're united in one cause. What is that cause? 
Stephen has to be stopped. Whatever's going on in Jerusalem has to be stopped. We can't accept the change that Stephen is bringing. These men began first by arguing. They started to look at Stephen to his face and they thought they could win him over because they had superior numbers. In verse 10 it says, but they couldn't win him over. If you look at verse 10, but they could not stand up against his wisdom or his spirit by whom he spoke. These people from the three different continents are there and they're saying, you could just see, they're just getting frustrated. He had wisdom and he had the spirit of God. Fascinating. They secretly persuaded some to say that Stephen is speaking words of blasphemy against Moses and against our God. So in verse 12, after they've done the secret meetings, then they ended up coming together and they stirred up the people. They even stirred up the elders and the teachers of the law, the people that were in the positions of leadership. They did everything they could to make it uncomfortable. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin to put him on trial. And if you look at the next verse 13, they weren't satisfied with that. They made sure that there were false witnesses that would testify against him. Was Stephen a success in his communication? Was he pragmatically a great communicator? Well, it all depends on what you're measuring. I want to tell you there's very few people that have ever lived that have ever had this kind of an effect on a crowd. Very few. Very few. But why should we study somebody's communications if he failed to get it off to communicate and be received by the people he was looking at? And I tell you, the reason why we need to pay attention to Stephen is because Jesus did. Now, if you look at the verse again, I want to take you back. When, when, Peter, excuse me, when, uh, when Stephen had finished speaking, you look at verse 59. Um, when, he, when they were stoning him, Stephen talks to the Lord Jesus. He ends up going down on his knees and he talks to the Lord Jesus again. But if you look at the actual text that was before us, what we read in the bulletin. In verse 54. They were gnashing their teeth at him. They were frustrated, but he gazed into heaven. Verse 55. He saw the glory of God. And then in verse 56, he explains it to them in his communication to the people that are picking up stones. Behold, I see God opening up the heavens. I see Jesus, the Son of Man, standing at the right hand of God. Which is to say, come on home. Welcome home. When Jesus commends somebody by standing, we need to pay attention. So pragmatically, he was a success. Secondly, I wanted to take you to the presentation. How did Stephen communicate? Now, it's pretty interesting that when you look around, it's, I looked at it, I was fascinated that he had the face of an angel. If you look down there in verse 15, uh, if you look at, at chapter 6, verse 15, you're going to be able to see how the text tells us. And gazing at him... All who sat in the council saw his face, and it was like the face of an angel. The presentation. If you look at some of the pictures of the Republican debates, or for that matter, the Democratic debates, you take a picture and you see it on the front page of the newspaper, what does it usually look like? Does it have them smiling? They always find a great shot that, that makes things look like they are, that they are problematic. 
you know, that these people are troubled. They take these photographs that try to bring out the anger, the frustration, the angst, and it's really fascinating. But when Stephen is communicating, his presentation is not what you would have expected. It wasn't downcast. It wasn't overwhelmed. He wasn't depressed. He wasn't even sad. He spoke as if he was an angel, a messenger from God. He shined. It was really neat. It's almost like when people saw him, they were angry at his appearance because he wasn't, he wasn't succumbing to their pressure. He wasn't kowtowing to their manipulations. He wasn't doing what they expected him to do. Their bullying, their techniques, their false accusers, everything didn't seem to dislodge him. He just stayed the course and he did it beautifully. And the only way he could do this because he was in communion with God. He was communicating what God had put on his heart. The presentation is fascinating. And ironically, is that even though he was calm as a cucumber and even though he had the face of an angel, did that make people feel better? No, in fact, it made them feel worse. They started to gnash their teeth and they started to get so riled up that before long they were picking up some of those stones that were laying nearby. It just doesn't make sense. Why wouldn't people see the beauty that's in Stephen? Why can't they see Jesus in him? They're like little Rosie up here. I'm trying to even show her the letters, but it all looks Chinese to her. She couldn't see what was right in front of her, and the people couldn't see what was right in front of them. There was the man of God who was giving them an explanation for something that they needed to hear, and he was doing it masterfully. But they never heard Jesus. They never heard him. Stephen's wisdom was sound. Stephen's words were full of that wisdom. Truth sets people free, and Stephen had the truth. It was presented to, by him and it was presented through him. As, as Stephen, he was in continuity in person and in message. What he was saying matched up with what he was believing. It was a consistent message. People should have been able to see this man who was full of the Holy Spirit. He was just chosen by the rest of the crowd to be a leader. But it was also presented through him. And we, we see he moved from the focal point to be a conduit. It wasn't about Stephen anymore. It was about what was coming through Stephen. It was a message. It was a message. If you turn back to Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you're going to see how God already prepared us to understand this through Luke. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you see this verse which says, after Jesus ascended, he says, you will receive what? Power. And after that, the Holy Ghost is going to come upon you and you'll be a witness unto me where? In Jerusalem. Now, if you turn over to chapter 6, you're going to be able to see in verse 8 that Stephen was full of grace and he was full of what? Stephen was full of grace and power. See, the very power that the Holy Spirit was going to grant was given to, to Stephen. And he was going to have not only a lot of grace, but he was going to have the power of God behind him. He was doing great wonders and signs among the people. He was doing a great job of meeting the needs of all those people who had been neglected. But then some of those who belonged to the synagogue were frustrated 
because of what he was ending up saying. Stephen was making their job irrelevant. And that comes to the third point. Even though Stephen had the words, 1 Corinthians 13.1, I just was going to quote that for you. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, it's, it's, it's empty. It's vain. So even though he stood there with the words of an, like an angel, I want you to know that he did have love. He loved God and he loved those people enough to go and, and share with them what they needed. It's really quite interesting how all of that comes together. But I want to get thirdly to the point about the profoundness of this message. It wasn't all about Stephen, as I just indicated, because the profoundness was the substance in this message that he was conveying. There was something more there than than maybe meets the eye. When I looked at this story growing up, I only heard another abysmal abysmal account of of chapter... um, At the end of chapter 4, we have a happy moment... Then in chapter 5, we have church members that are dying. That was Ananias and Sapphira. They were good people. They brought money to put in the offering boxes. They were good people, but God killed them. That's all I knew as a kid. Dangerous to be in church. Okay? And then the next chapter, since my dad was a pastor at all, it seemed pretty dangerous to be in church leadership because even though they were giving their best, they were overwhelmed and everybody was complaining. It was not a great place to be. Some of my sisters don't ever want to go to church. And then in chapter 6 and 7, we find the next thing is you have one of the great guys who's doing a good job, and guess what happened to his lifespan? It was shortened. The church is a great place to be. (laughs) Praise God, he raised up people like Saul that was going to take it to the ends of the earth, because if you're in Jerusalem right now, I don't know if you really want to join. I saw all of these things before, and I was going to tell you that there's something new that I saw today in this study this, this past week in preparation for this. The substance, the profoundness. You see, the gospel is seen in, what, G, in, in what, what Stephen is communicating. Now, I want to be able to explain it to you by the craftiness of the others. Okay, you want to know what Stephen's sermon was about? One, read it. There's a lot of text that you should be reading. But secondly, I want to be able to say, if, if your enemies attack you, look at where they attack. So I want to be able to understand that there's three attacks that were cloaked in, by, cloaked in the opposition's words. So if you look, you're going to be able to see, they first, uh, verse 11, then they secretly persuaded some to say, we have heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and of God. Their first attack was to try to make Stephen look like he was against them and their history. History. He says, we're going to make him be an enemy of our great hero Moses. And on top of that, we're going to make him even to be an enemy of our God, our covenant-keeping God. So they slipped people out there and said, Stephen speaks words of blasphemy. Sadly, some people believed it. Sadly, some people believed this technique. Because Stephen did cherish Moses. And he did cherish the covenant-keeping God. The other way the opposition came in, and you can find this uh, in verse, at the end of verse 12, before the Sanhedrin, verse 13 says, they produced false witnesses who testified this. This fellow never stops speaking against the holy place and against the law. So now they're not just going against the past. Now they're going against our traditions, the things we still hold today. He says, can you believe it? He is even against our church. He's against the very thing we set up. He's against the laws that we keep. Ah, What are we going to do? They set this up 
They attacked him for speaking against the building and against their Bible. Poor Stephen. Do you think he did this? I want to be able to tell you he did. But it wasn't like this. The third attack that they gave was on sensibility. If you look at, the, at verse 14, we have even heard him say this. I mean, this is like the top thing. This is the killer of it all. This Jesus of Nazareth is going to destroy this place and he's going to destroy the customs of Moses that we've been hanging on to for years. He's going to do those things too. He's a nut. He hangs on to that Jesus guy who died. I mean, if you think about this, I know I'm a little excited, but this is what they were doing. This is really what they were doing. They were attacking the past. They were attacking tradition and they were attacking sensibility. They're saying he's a nut. He's a loon. Get rid of him. Profound. Because they took a little bit of the truth and they twisted it. A little bit of the truth and they twisted it. And so in the sermon that he gives, if you'll take the time to read it, you'll see how he counterbalances this and how some of what they said that they accused him of of not understanding Moses or not understanding God or not understanding the church building or not understanding the laws or not understanding Jesus. And he explains it so well. And they got angrier. The historical line. In the sermon, he ends up speaking about Abraham all the way up through Solomon. He tells these people, he says, I love these people. You know, they're great people. I almost sound like Donald Trump. They're wonderful people. But he stops with Solomon because Solomon is the point about the building that he wanted to deal with. He said all these things were going on until Solomon. Solomon built this wonderful place and then God showed up and filled that place, that building. And by the way, they're standing right outside of it. They might have been on the Temple Mount. And Stephen is saying, Solomon, in his day, the glory of this great God showed up in the church. And it was a great day. It was an awesome day. David was dancing before the Lord earlier on because the ark was going to be coming in. But now when the glory of God fills it, people are rejoicing. And and so he's not fighting any of that holy place stuff. But then we find out, he says, Stephen says, you missed it. God doesn't get stuck in a building. God doesn't get locked in. Even though it's a cosmic crossroads, that's not where God resides. God's house is not his home. God's house is where you come to meet with God. But it's not like it was anymore. Change. C-H-A-N-G-E. Stephen is standing to these people that were used to the synagogue and they are angry with him because he's saying, God doesn't need this synagogue anymore. The things that you've been doing, the traditions that you've been doing, by the way, this is what they were used to. Week after week, big season after big season, they came and they did their animal sacrifices and they would go to the priests and the priests would cut the things and they would do all that stuff and the blood would ooze out and it was a big deal. It was a week-long celebration. I think you get what I'm saying. But they had a problem because if you look at verse 8 of chapter 6, you might have missed this. Now, it's actually at the end of verse 7. The word of God continued to increase. The number of disciples multiplied in Jerusalem. And then this part that you might have missed, what does it say? The priests became Christians. Oh, no. What does that mean, Pastor? 
Nobody was there to cut the animals anymore. Nobody was there to go through the synagogue scenario anymore. They stopped all those kind of traditions because when they became Christians, there is no more blood to be shed. It's already been done once. And when you start to understand this, this is why they they started to cringe. They had not understood the gospel. They didn't see what Stephen was telling them. He says, yes, the priests are not needed anymore. In fact, the priests don't need to be in the church anymore. And in the Reformed faith, we talk about the priesthood of believers. There is no person that needs to stand between you and God except one, and his name is Jesus. There is no other person that you have to speak to in a booth. There is nobody else that you have to be able to to get some penance, to be able to get affirmed that you're clean. You don't even have to go through a pastor. You go directly to Christ alone. And as Stephen stood up there, he's talking directly to Jesus. The message is coming through him as a conduit. And he is standing there with the power and the calmness because he sees Jesus standing Jesus is saying, preach it. This message that there is no more works ever needed again. This message that the gospel or the the writer of Hebrews in chapter 9 and 10 ends up bringing out. He says, the blood of bulls and of goats will never cover sin. Never will it accomplish what the blood of the lamb did. You see, Stephen is standing there and he says, there's a change, people. C-H-A-N-G-E. And it's because the atonement has been accomplished. And now it needs to be applied. An application. I had a couple illustrations. These are too big. So I brought my show and tell. Let me just go ahead and do this. Here, why don't you take one? Why don't you take one? Here, you can have one too. Okay. I don't have enough for everybody. The people could not stand the message. They could not stand the messenger. And they said, we want to have somebody who will tickle our ears. We want somebody that will keep our traditions. And so the temptation was, is to pick up a stone. Now, this is not new in Scripture. There was some guy that everybody loved named David, and he picked up how many little stones? Only a boy named David, only a little sling. He picked up that stone, and he used that stone to bring down the mighty enemy of God because when he came before Goliath, right there at that, at that valley, he said, I come to you in the name of the Lord. And the stone that he had picked up, he only needed one. It went, and it brought down the enemy of God. Now, there was another time in Matthew chapter 4 where Jesus ends up having a stone in his hand. He's just been set apart to be the great high priest. He was baptized in the Jordan. It wasn't for the remission of sins. It was for ordination to be the great high priest. And he holds a stone. He's been hungry for 40 days. He is exhausted. He is hungry. He is, he is at his wit's end humanly, humanly. And Satan says, take this stone and do what with it? Use it to satisfy your desires. You're hungry, right? Turn it into bread. 
The temptation was to take that stone and to go ahead and weave it around and make it what you need it to be. And you see, when it came down to Stephen's gate, after they yanked Stephen and they pulled him outside of the city walls there of Jerusalem, which is just at the base of the big mountaintop where Herod had built that great place, people had to decide if they were going to stoop down and pick up a stone. Here's a stone. What can we use this stone for? And they took the stones and they threw it. And if you have that picture up on the wall, I don't know if it looked like that. I don't even want to look. But people picked up the stones and killed them. When was the last time you've been tempted to take up a stone? When was the last time? Who are you prone to throw it at? Jesus in John chapter 8 told us that he who is without sin should take the stone. And how many threw it? I pray that we will all be able to see the beauty of Christ's message. Yes, the girl that was caught in adultery, she was wrong. She was absolutely wrong, John chapter 8. But Jesus said, I'll take care of it. Vengeance is mine. You don't have to do this. And so he ended up telling them, I'm dealing with it. And as that girl walked away, because her life was spared at that time, there was grace upon grace that Jesus told her, don't sin anymore. Don't keep in this lifestyle. Change. Now, as I stand here today, don't throw those stones. (laughs) I didn't have any gadget to catch them or anything like that. I certainly was not going to give a slingshot to folks. I don't know where they'd end up then. Uh, But the thing about this is that Stephen ends up preaching a message. And we, it resonates in our hearts. Because more than likely, we stand with the folks who picked up the stones than with Stephen. We are more inclined to, to, to judge people and say, you're ruining it for us, rather than having the applause of the Father. And when I made the personal application, I know that there's some derision and some conflict. There's a lot of things going on. But whatever side you find yourself on, you're on the wrong side. Because in the church, how many sides are there? Oh, no, there's the right side and the left side. If you think about what I'm trying to tell you, last week the message was there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all. There's only one atonement, and that's why there needs no longer be priests, no longer blood, no more synagogue. Which, by the way, that's why I'm opposed to the eschatology that says they're going to rebuild the temple. Because it's not needed. Jesus paid it all. I have a hymn. And I want to just read the lyrics as we close. It's a powerful hymn. And it says, John Newton wrote this hymn on the death of Stephen. And then I'll close in prayer. So faithful Stephen, undismayed, the malice of the Jews surveyed. The holy joy which filled his breast, a luster on his face impressed. Behold, he said, the world of light is open to my strength and sight. My glorious Lord appears in view. That Jesus, whom you lately slew, 
with such a friend and witness near. No form of death could make me fear. Calm amidst showers of stones, he kneels. And only for his murderer feels. May we, by faith, perceive thee thus, dear Savior, ever near to us. This fight our peace through life shall keep, and death be feared no more than sleep. Thus they who in the Lord confide, though foes assault on every side, cannot be moved or overthrown. For Jesus makes their cause his own. Dear Lord, I've stood at Stephen's gate. Just like I've stood at Lexington's Green, where the shot was fired for the Revolutionary War. And in both places, I've asked, would I take that stand? Would I be willing to risk my life? Is this cause worth dying for? And Stephen, he not, he, it was not even a choice. He knew Jesus. And this was God's will for him that the message of the atonement would not be silenced but actually went forward with a megaphone. For after this point in time, the power of God not only had reached Jerusalem, but now it was going to go to the ends of the earth. Oh Lord, I pray that you'll speak to us through this interesting message in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.